Hello, welcome. This is episode 148 of the Chattering Classes. Two hobos, I believe we called it in the end. I don't know how uh, the guests feel will feel about the title of that, but that's what it's called. Uh, I am joined uh, this week by author Jack Heath. He has a book coming out, uh, 300 Minutes of Mystery, um, which you can get on the 1st of August. Um, he's written 10 books in the series. I guess we call them the Minutes. Uh, there's, uh, you know, all these books about danger and mystery that you can find there as well. Uh, he's also got so many books. Uh, the books that I refer to in this is a series of five books uh, called Liars. Um, it's all about, it's all sort of young adult fiction about someone who's invented an app which can tell if people are lying. And uh, certain people in the world don't want that to get out. Um but in other news, we actually got an email. That's exciting. Uh, you can email us at Gmail. Uh, it's uh, chatteringpod at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram too, at chatteringclassespod. Uh, it's usually just pictures of my cat sitting on the books that I'm currently reading. Um, and then I just post about each episode. Nothing too exciting. But I got an email from someone in Singapore called Maria. Thank you, Maria, for emailing. Uh, I should be better at this, but I'm not. Um, and she just said, why is it called The Chattering Classes? Why is the podcast called The Chattering Classes? I don't know if we answered that even in some of our question and answer episodes we did for the hundreds and various ones. Um, it's just called The Chattering Classes because I, even long before I uh, made the podcast, I uh, had heard that phrase, The Chattering Classes. It refers to, I don't know, I heard it, maybe I read it in a book, but it was just a very rich toff talking about the poor people uh, and what they get up to. And, oh, we must disregard whatever the chattering classes believe. Uh, and so I always liked that term. Uh, and I also thought it would be a good name for a podcast because I'm a teacher. And certainly at the start, mostly what I was doing was interviewing teachers. So I thought it was quite fitting. It's just all about people who chatter and natter and spread gossip and rumour. So thank you, Maria. If you want to get in contact with us, yeah, email us again. Chattering classes. See, I can't even do that right. It's chatteringpod at gmail.com. Man, I suck. Sorry, Jack. All right, we're getting a Jack Heath. It's episode 148. Let's go. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, I am talking to Jack Heath, author, Canberra native, I yes. believe. Well, no? I wasn't born here, but I okay. mean, no one was. <laughs> no, <laughs> so, that's, that's true. I wasn't, yeah. It's I'm, a pretty transitory yeah. sort of town. But yeah, I lived here since 96, so right. pretty local. Right. So where were you before that? Uh, Melbourne, Sydney, Wollongong. I moved around a lot when I was a little kid. But, right. um, but my, my parents got public service jobs here right, right. And, and we moved here. And now I can't imagine living anywhere else. Yeah, it's a bit like that, isn't it? Really, mm. sort of... Stockholm Syndrome. Canberra <laughs> Syndrome. It's sort of the first place I've put roots down since I left home, which was, you know, you know 25 years ago. But Yeah, right. It was one of those, I like moving around, and then I got here, and I was like, oh, yeah? It's uh, weird that way, isn't it? It's a weird <laughs> town. Hard to explain. It, it is, to, to people who haven't been here, yeah. I think, or... 
I think there are visitors, people who come to town right. and sort of they, they see Black Mountain Tower and they see the museums and stuff and they're like, oh, nice place to visit, but how would you, <laughs> how does it work actually living here? That's a great, great way to put it. How does it work living here? Yeah. You know, the other day I went to a Prince concert, not the real Prince, it was like a, because he's dead, it was a tribute, <laughs> tribute concert. And huh. um, it was this amazing, amazing gig. The musicians were phenomenal. Uh, two of them had independently of one another, one Australia's Got Talent in the past. So these were like really high quality musicians and hardly anyone turned up. And right. there was one guy who'd driven all the way from Bateman's Bay and he was like, what is this? No one came out. And I'm like, well, Canberra is the best place on earth to see a world-class act in a half empty room. Yes. And then the following day, I drove to Sydney and I took my kids to Sea Life Aquarium on Darling Harbour. Yeah. And there's about 20,000 people lined up to see a penguin. And I was like, those poor musicians, you know, you practice for eight hours wow. a day for 20 years. Have you tried being a penguin instead? That's how you, you pull a crowd Far out. <laughs> and yeah. also be in Sydney. That's, that's very true. Uh, my wife and I went and see uh, John Cameron Mitchell, who did, oh, yeah. um, you know, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, one of our favourite movies. Yeah, 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 right. And it was the same thing. It was the first night of his show and it was all, he just basically told stories about the, the life of, the musical and mm -hmm. creating it and played the songs at the same time and it was going to be in the big theater and then they moved it to the small theater and then even that was i don't know 40 percent full yeah. and it was still incredible exactly but the same I'm thing just yeah. like oh come on people this is amazing <laughs> and then of course he, the, the next night he was at the opera house completely packed out couldn't get tickets and it's just yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a weird place. I think travelling artists and performers and, you know, speakers and stuff, they come here, if they are not Australian, they come here by mistake because they think, well, <laughs> they go it's to the capital, capital city, <laughs> yeah. it's going to be the biggest one. And then they, uh, they really struggle to fill whatever venue they, yeah. they get. And I have heard, too, that a lot of people go to the theatre mm. because they go to the theatre, like, well, to see anything. Yeah. And so a lot of times it's a lot of just... People sitting cross-armed, just like, huh. <laughs> like the reaction's just not yeah, as yeah. overwhelming. Impress me. Yeah. I was the only person to turn up to a Midnight Oil concert. What do you got, <laughs> Edwig? <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, all, right. all right, so let's uh, talk about, you've got uh, some posters here. 300 oh, Minutes yeah, and I Mysteries. was just dropping them off at the library. They're, they're not for the podcast. You can have one no, if you no, want No, 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 I just wanted you... sent me millions. <laughs> I just wanted you to, like, say what it is. This oh, is right, your new, yeah, newest yeah. book. It's my new book, 300 Minutes of Mystery. It is the 10th and final book in oh, my Minutes final. of right. series, which began back in the day with 300 Minutes of Danger. So that came out in 2015, and that book was the main reason that I was able to quit my day job in 2017 right. and write full-time. So I was going to ask you about that, because the, that's the one I've read... 200 Minutes Mystery last mm -hmm. week. Okay. Like, oh, I'm interviewing you. I've, wow, cool. I've got to read read uh, at least a couple. I read that and I read the first book of the Lies series because okay. the, the friends of mine who uh, recommended that I get in contact with you yeah. asked their kids and said, Matt's talking to yeah. Jack Heath, what book? They both said the same thing. They were both, oh, liars. Right. Go read the liars. Well, you have oh. already done more research than 99% of the people um, who interview me. So I'm grateful, <laughs> humbled. Uh, the pressure is on, clearly. So, so, with that in mind, what annoying questions do they ask you? And then I can cross them off my list of questions <laughs> that I've got for you. Oh, right. Oh, man. I don't know. Often there's um, some sort of awkward questions where they because they've done a little bit of research, like they've looked up my bio online or something, yeah. they'll ask 
um, something that'll put me in an awkward position like for example so you were born in Melbourne what was that like and then I have to decide whether to admit that that's a piece of harmless misinformation that I put on my right. website to yeah. stop people from like uh, like tracking you yeah exactly yeah, gotcha. yeah. I, I put too much of my personal information online when I was a young person right. any young people listening to this don't do that because once it's on there it's very hard to get off but what you can do instead is like <laughs> cover it up with harmless right. misinformation so I um, anyway so a lot of the questions I'm asked refer to things that didn't actually happen <laughs> but I can't accuse them of poor research it's like yeah I lied to you but not specifically you and oh, I mean it was on purpose but uh, I'm just trying to stop my house from getting discovered by some of my scarier right, fans of my gotcha. adult books because there's a, a couple of those yeah, right so uh, I also listened to a, a podcast you did a few years ago now and okay. one of the things you said in that which I found interesting was that you wish you had a pen name Oh, right. Because yeah, yeah. authors that you've met who have pen names seem to have a much nicer life. <laughs> so I want to, then I don't think exactly. there was anything expanded well, on. What my, are, what... my solution to that has been to tell people that Jack Heath is my pen name. Oh, and of okay. course, it's also my real name, but I yeah. tell them it's my pen name. Right. And that means anyone who, I figure anyone who tries to hack into my bank accounts, their first step is going to be to try to work out what my what real, real name, name is, is and it'll take them a while to realize what i've done and then maybe they'll have like grudging respect for me and will give up the attempt <laughs> you never know so when you said that like the uh, the authors who have pen names seem to have a, a better a happier life yeah is it just because of that less pressure or i don't think it's that i i think it's like a, a work-life balance thing yeah. in the same way as um some people, you know, they'll get dressed up in a suit and tie to go to right, work right. and they will feel more like a business person. Yeah. Um, like this is... Uh, I have no fashion sense. You can tell by looking at me. It, it's not um, available to <laughs> no, listeners no of the podcast. But just picture kind of a, like a hobo looking guy if you're listening to this. Two hobos <laughs> speaking. Maybe that's what you could picture. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think... So sometimes you can dress your way into feeling a certain way that makes you better at your job, right? And that's not necessarily... It's more common in the corporate world probably than in the arts and writing world. Although maybe not. There's some people who dress sort of very pretentiously. But because I work from home, it would be ridiculous for me to get dressed up in a suit and tie while I have done it. But what you can do is like abandon your name, your like identity. Gotcha. Um, and then mm. think your way into being this other person who's the person you are at work. It's a bit like commuting, right? If you right. commute to your job, yep. you have the period of that commute to think your way out of your personal version of Matt and into your work yes. version of Matt. Right. And my commute is like a 20-meter walk right. from my house to my writing studio, right. in, which is like set up in a room in the garage. That's that's um, uh, exactly the same. And this is obviously I'm comparing you as writers and as people and yeah. all that. But that's what the, I remember. That's what you were saying, and that's what uh, Roald Dahl did. I yeah, remember him okay. saying the same thing was, oh, I, I get. I think he would get dressed up, put on like a some kind of work outfit, yeah. and that he said that walk to the to the shed was that exact thing was the commute. Yeah, right. Okay. In a, I'm in a separate place, in a separate mind space. Exactly. And I don't think it really works if you, um, if you like, listen to a podcast or something on the way. Like, if you're huh. commuting yes, to work and you're right. listening to something else as opposed to thinking about what you're about to do. Yeah. It's like the difference between giving a, 
a speech at a school and giving a speech over Zoom to a school. Yes. When you have like um, the flight to wherever it is and then right, right. the taxi ride to wherever it is, gotcha. when you have all that time to sort of psychologically mm. get yourself in the space of presenting, you yeah. kind of do it a bit better than when you kind of glance at your watch and go, whoop, I've got that speech in five minutes and then kind of boot up your laptop. It's not quite the same oh, thing. Yeah. And I do think that even though Jack Heath is my real name as well as my pen name, I don't really think of myself as Jack Heath except when I'm at work. Um, gotcha. I think of myself as daddy because that's what my kids call right, me right, right, right. so um i i stop i i like take myself out of parent mode and put mm -hmm. myself into work mode by right. thinking of myself as jack heath as opposed to daddy if right. that makes any sense and that also would explain why your office is removed from, yeah, right. from the center of the house the, um, i'd imagine the the kids don't come in there or at least i try to discourage them from so how from do they I, I, how, I don't know how old your kids are, oh, but did they, did they, does the nine-year-old have any concept of like what your job is? Oh yeah, they, they both know um, what my job is. I, the nine-year-old obviously has a better understanding mm -hmm. of it than the four-year-old does. There's yeah. nothing exciting about it to yeah. them because I've, I've been a writer since as long as they've been alive, yeah. much longer in fact. Uh, but there's... I did get a bit of extra job satisfaction actually when my, my now nine-year-old was old enough to start reading some of my that, work. Yeah. When I, I wrote a, a series of comedies a while ago. The first mm -hmm. one was called Stunt Kids Seriously Stacks It. But the, the, the last one was called Villain Kid Fully Busted. When I was reading it to my nine-year-old and he was just you know laughing his little bottom off, yeah. um, that made me really happy. Usually... Uh, being a writer isn't like being a stand-up comedian where you walk out onto stage and then tell a joke and then get immediate feedback. Right, Either yes. people laugh or they don't. When you're a writer, there's so many layers between you and the audience yeah. that it's hard to... Um, I've heard it said that um, despite how people think about customer-facing jobs like retail, mm -hmm. often the people with the most job satisfaction are the ones who have direct a direct connection to the person who their job helps. And sometimes that's a bit difficult as a writer, but, mm. but when I was suddenly writing books that my kids could read, that was really enjoyable. But the, uh, the flip side of it is that sometimes I'll be like, hey, would you like to read one of my books? And he's like, no, thanks. I prefer David Williams. He's better than you. <laughs> yeah, he's a grocer and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, what you were saying there, very, very similar circumstances to being a teacher. Yeah. My kids growing up, knowing I'm a teacher and not respecting that at all <laughs> they, they respect their teachers and love their teachers but it's only been recently that my eldest who's in year nine now yeah has uh, when uh, when they're asking for help he's mm -hmm. like oh thank you thank you for this. you're you're quite good at this <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah funny that like and i think that it's... that really obviously during the pandemic was one of those things that they i think she was the first to appreciate was like Oh, I have a teacher in the house. That's useful. Yeah. Because before that, it was like, would you like some help? No. Mm, right. No, I, I'm doing maths work. You're an English teacher. Like, okay. About five years ago, I met a woman named Lauren whose um, last name escapes me, which is embarrassing. I got COVID in like 2021 and it completely scrambled my brain. Right, so right, right. kind of anything that happened before that is still a little bit fuzzy, which is worrying. But anyway, neither <laughs> here nor there. So she's a teacher, a primary yeah. school teacher, and she was also like an Olympic hurdler. And wow. I was interviewing her um, because I was writing a character who is an Olympic hurdler. And as I started writing 
the book, I realized I knew nothing at all about the world of elite sports. So I, yeah. I did what I always did. I like reached out to an expert and went, hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee and you answer some of my dumb questions? <laughs> and it was funny how I said, wow, the kids at your primary school must just see you as a, a superhero. And yeah. she's like, they absolutely do not do that. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but they, I mean, you can run so fast like you're famous for you're literally the fastest woman in australia in your event and she's like yeah but the kids all think they could outrun me they're like yeah if i if i really tried i could and i'm like no you literally couldn't <laughs> but if i really wanted to yeah well also the, there you're a teacher especially if it's primary school yeah. you are a teacher this other thing Nah, we don't like. It's almost like we don't believe that's you. Yeah, like, that's right. Not Rick. You're in front of us. Yeah, yeah. You can't possibly have a life outside the classroom. No, I that mean that would be unthinkable. We'd have to con- treat you like a person if we thought about that. <laughs> I'm sure you, you, especially your nine year old. I don't know about you, but my kids certainly for ages would just freak out if they saw their teachers in public. Oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Their brain. My, the first teaching job I had, I remember seeing students in. Mm. It was in a small town of eight thousand people, but if I was at Coles when they were at Coles. Yeah, yeah. Like, what are you doing? Paralyzed. What are you doing here? Did you ever read um, Calvin and Hobbes when you were a a comic strip? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like the one where Calvin sees his teacher, Miss Wormwood, in the the supermarket. Yeah. And... um, (laughs) And it was like during the school holidays or something, and he's utterly freaked out. And um, (laughs) his mum's like, "Where did you, where did you think teachers went during the holidays?" And he's like, "I kind of thought they slept in coffins all summer, (laughs) or something like that." Well, I know know, like teachers who are kindergarten teachers, and they the kids think they stay, they live at school. Yeah, yeah. This is your home, and I come here, and this is where you are. Like you're always here. It's a strange idea. Anyway, Mm. I wanted to to ask you a couple of things about the the you said the minute series oh yeah it's hard to find a good title for it because i could call it the minutes of i had it written series, down like what is this but series a couple called? of oh, I have minutes series, of mystery right. instead and i could call it minutes of except that eliminates the fact that there's a few called countdown to danger right, right, right. and stuff but so you have all these stories and they're broken in chapters and they're written as usually as a whole story but each story has different characters uh, escaping or solving something That's along right. the way. Um, my 11-year-old daughter said, this is such a good idea. I don't know if it's possible to not read it all in one go. Mm. And I was like, that's a, an interesting observation. Is well, like, Where did the idea come from? Was that something I, I remember from your interview previously that, and I wasn't sure if it was in relate, relation to this, that someone asked you to do something like this? Yeah, yeah. I, I often find myself... Um, writing on command sort of as in someone uh, when you're at the sort of very early stage of your career you um, you have to write a book and then find a publisher to sell it to but I've worked with I've had good working relationships with enough publishers over the years that sometimes one of them will come to me with something like hey could you write a, a book about this I'm doing one at the moment where my um, adult crime publisher said, I've always wanted to publish a murder mystery set on a cruise ship. And I'm like, okay, coming right up. Um, but in this case, uh, so Scholastic um, approached me about writing a horror series called Scream, um, right. which has just yep, been re-released I've got that as an down. audiobook. Yep. Okay. And um, they... Uh, so I, I wrote that series, they published it. Um, it didn't do that well. It did okay, but yeah. um, was picked up in French as well, which was nice. But um, I don't think 
I'm not privy to what their marketing right, spend right, right. on it was, yeah. but I, I think they um, their view was that it underperformed. But fortunately, they didn't blame that on me. They were like, well, you you met your deadlines, right, right, right. you were responsive to feedback, yeah. you um, you submitted good stuff. So yeah. sorry, that didn't work out, but, uh, but we like working with you. We've got this other idea called 30 Minutes of Danger. That was the title at the time. Yeah. And we were just thinking it could be a book of short stories about 10 different kids in 10 different dangerous situations and each one could be 30 minutes. Like yeah. it takes 30 minutes to read, um, but also it's 30 minutes out of the character's life. Yeah. And I was a big fan of the show 24. So right, I said, right. yeah, sounds great. I'll, um, I'll absolutely do that. So then I had to come up with all the the dangerous things i basically started with the premise of okay what are 10 horrible ways a child could die um you got uh falling a really long way you got radiation poisoning you've got poison poisoning yeah (laughs) and then i thought okay what are 10 clever ways a child could get out of that situation and the stories kind of flowed from there it was only when i was already doing the editing when i was like hey these stories could be linked like that car that gets parked on the train tracks and there's a kid trapped in the boot could the train that hits it could be the girl who's on an out of control train that that could be like the same one so i started kind of blending them together a little bit to try to give the sense of an overarching plot and link them all together and so i leaned further into that um over the course of the series like sometimes it reads more like a novel sometimes Mm. it reads more like a collection of short stories but I always try to slip those little links in and what I've tried to do with 300 minutes of mystery the one that comes out on August 1st because it's the final book I've tried to use it to link not only all 10 stories in the book but all 10 books together so it's supposed to kind of weave it all together into one mega danger universe yeah um, and then I'm done, and I can write the something else. The Mega Danger Universe is a pretty That's good a title. Good, yep. Okay. To put that in, you could get Mega sell. Danger Universe MDU. Yeah. Is that taken? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that might be a struggle. That one, but yeah, I don't know. But yeah, yeah that sounds great. Um, the, the other question I had about the, the series and also the Scream series and mm. all of that stuff is uh, often we get confused. I, other people, we get confused by the the timing of your releases as if you've written them all at the same time and they've all been published at the same time. Right. So I noticed that the the Liars series, five books all were, were released from 1st of September to the 1st of September. So all yeah, okay. in the span, span of a year. And that the Scream series... That sounds right. I'll have to take your word for it. <laughs> and the Scream series was four books all released within three months of each other. Uh, yeah. So that seems like to us, wow, you wrote all those books in a year. You wrote all of those in a short amount of time. Is that the case? Or is that just how it was marketed? Mm. Or did you have, especially with the Liars series, um, which if you've got young kids and you ha- and they haven't read Liars, they should. It's just like like catnip for readers. It's just <laughs> like, all right, well, I've got to find it. Got to keep going. Got to keep going. Got to keep going. Um, oh, and it's a great... A great premise. Um, uh, um, so, uh, yeah, how do you... As far as how the books are written and released, um, so in the case of the Scream series, I literally wrote the at least the first draft of the 
first four books in four months. And right. I had a, um, a very new baby at the time as well. So that was a heck of a four months, especially since I was also working a day job. <laughs> so that was crazy. Maybe that's what impressed Scholastic so right, much, right, the, right. the fact that I could write to this quality that fast under those circumstances. What, what do you um, put that down to? Like that uh, sounds like a brain explosion. I, it, uh, I really, really, really wanted to be a writer. Like or yeah. I was a writer, yeah. but I'd been so early in my career, I'd had kind of one smash hit. My first book was called The Lab. It did mm -hmm. really well. And then I, I wrote a flop and then another flop and then another flop. And I just kept writing flops because I had really in because I enjoyed writing and I knew that it must be possible to do this um, and make enough money to live off doing it because I had done it once. I'd done that, that one book that had done really well. I, my wife and I had a financial planner at the time and I remember um, he'd asked, you know, what are your financial goals? Think big. And I was like, I just want time to write. I, right. I want... Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, I want more writing time than I have at the moment because at that stage I was working a nine to five job Monday mm -hmm. to Friday it was quite a long way from my house there was a long commute as well and stuff like that and both the financial planner and I think my wife were disgusted by my lack of ambition yes, right. <laughs> the fact that I, I wasn't saying I wanted to own this many properties mm -hmm. I didn't say I wanted to be able to finance a movie based on one of my books I just wanted to be kind of left alone so I could write my books and to have enough money to make that happen so when I met Scholastic and they were like, oh, we, we'd need you to write these pretty quickly, I'm like, I'll do anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, well, whatever it takes, I'll, I'll make it happen. And it helped that I had done NaNoWriMo um, okay. in yep. 2012, yep, yep, National Novel Writing Month. So I had written a 50,000 word book in just the month of November. And of course that book wasn't good, yeah. but prior to that, I'd been writing one book per year and it had felt like sort of a full-time job. Right. After I had forced myself to write 1,660 words per day every day for 30 days, um, that was like, a, you know, it's like doing push-ups. Yeah. If you do one today, you'll be able to do two tomorrow. And I, I learned that I could kind of just switch on that inspiration. Right. I didn't have to wait to be inspired. Wow, okay. I, could just, I could just force it if I really, really had to. Wow. I'm sorry, I ranted for so long that no. I forgot what the question was. That's there. what we were oh, talking about. Oh, it was about, about release dates yeah. and stuff, right? Yeah, so how the, did, you, the did screen... you write them so quickly or were they... Yeah, um, so I wrote them pretty pretty fast. Uh, but Actually, not... my question really was, how on earth did you write so much with a small baby and yeah. and all of that stuff? So like, what was that time of your life like? Yeah, it, it was Manic? Pretty... <laughs> Manic, maybe. Um, I, I didn't realise this at the time, but uh, I later realized that I also had postpartum depression like I right. wasn't coping well with okay. the with the birth of um of my first child at that point yeah. and the workload probably on the one hand it wouldn't have helped because mm -hmm. the last thing you want to do to a depressed person is like add additional stress and deadlines and stuff but it also for better or worse gave me something I could disappear into yeah. I was like okay so this this whole parenting thing isn't uh, going how I planned and any parents listening to your podcast will be like well there's your problem you had a plan yeah, plans, <laughs> you can't yeah. expect when I have a friend who um, 
who has a, a kid about the same age as my youngest kid. So we exchange messages back and forth about experiences we've had. And I end up over and over, like on a very regular basis, sending him a, a GIF from the Terminator where there's Kyle Reese explaining to Sarah Connor um, yeah. what the Terminator is. Um, because it's such a perfect parenting gift. Like Kyle Reese says, uh, it can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned, reasoned with. with. Yeah. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. Yeah, and, and it will, will never, not stop yeah, right. until you stop. are dead. <laughs> anyway, so I uh, had this young baby. I'd, I'd realized I hadn't... Um, I don't think I underestimated how difficult it would be. Mm -hmm. I think I overestimated my own ability to rise to the challenge. I was like, when I become a parent, I will be a dad. I will be the kind of person that mm. is a dad. But I think when you... <laughs> this, I know I was going to talk about my writing here. No, so that's, maybe this is I'm, good. This is good. Yeah. I, I'm wary of uh, going too far outside my wheelhouse. Like... It's all well and good when you're having just a conversation with a friend to say something that right. you don't really have any expertise in. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and then I know they can help mean. you out. But when you're speaking publicly, it's a good idea to stick yeah. to your field of expertise. I did like what you, what you said, though, about uh, when you, before you had a kid, you knew it was going to be hard. Yeah. I don't think I've heard it framed like that. And I think you've just really nailed something there. Yeah. Of like Everyone knows it's going to be hard. We think... Oh, new parents, they don't realise how hard it is. But I think you're right. I think a lot of the problem comes from... Oh, my expectations of myself is that I know yeah. it's hard, but I'm going to be able to handle yeah. it. I'll rise to the challenge. But if you don't handle if you're not handling it, then yeah. it's sort of... There's like like as, as the Terminator, there's no, there's no escape hatch. There's yeah, no yeah. like, oh, well, I'll just walk away from this issue for months and yeah, clear yeah. my head. And unlike a, mm. a job, I mean, I'd worked hard jobs in the past, but yeah. the point is those jobs end. Like yeah. you, can, you can go home at the end of the day and, and kind of um, clock off. Yeah. And I also think that it's like, because parenting is so um, life-changing that everyone says often in an upbeat way, but it can also be in, in the other way. The yeah. point is it's like the person you used to be actually dies. Like, because mm. you, the friends that that person had, you yeah. kind of no longer have because it's hard to see them. And the hobbies that person had, you no longer have mm. because you can't find the time to do them. Yeah. But that's okay because a new person emerges from that chrysalis who has different hobbies and different interests and a different bunch yes. of friends. You know, you hang out with the friends of the parents, the parents of the, of the friends kids. your child has. Yeah. But if there's a gap between when the old person dies and the new person emerges, yeah. that gap, I think, maybe is what we sometimes call postpartum depression. Yeah. I was stuck yeah. in that for a long time where I'm like, well, I'm just kind of a zombie person working around. And sort of the only thing... But mm. So, I couldn't control parenting. I could control my work. Right. Not only that, but the kind of work I was doing, you're creating this world in which everything that happens is up to you. You have yeah. absolute control. I think I became a writer as... When I was a teenager, one of the things that really drew really appealed to me about writing was that it was it felt like it was the one thing i could do without someone else watching over my shoulder and telling me i was doing it wrong right. i could just go into i could sit in front of the computer no one else is around and you can you can write anything yeah. there's uh oh. and 
you don't even have to show it to anyone if you don't want to yeah. um, and no one's going to sort of swoop in and take over for you and tell you ah, there's a more efficient way of doing that or whatever hello so. teachers <laughs> yeah well, you should oh, we do creatives at school year, year 11 and 12 we do creative writing and the students write creatively and mm. then we as teachers with no skill apart from the fact that we read a lot yeah then tell them no 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 <laughs> this is wrong this That's is structure you, you, you have to fit the rubric and sometimes i find myself like oh, why do you have to fit into anyway yeah like, no, this I is this that. is a really good story but it's not what we've asked you to do so your grade is terrible like mm. that kind of thing where this is interesting but anyway but that's that's beyond with that i want i wanted to get back to something you said before and the way you said it. Yeah. Well, you're like, I had flop after flop, and then I had another flop. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, my year 10 class were actually working on dealing with failure. Because oh, the year yep. 10 class at this school is a, it's called the SMART program for a start, which mm-hmm. I won't comment on. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. I have mixed feelings about that. Go yeah. on. Okay. <laughs> you said that. I did not say that. Anyway, um, yeah. but so I've, we're really looking at failure and how we cope with failure because for a lot of them, they're not used to failure at school and they're not used to uh, even constructive criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things we we're even talking about today was what happens when you fail and how you fail in your relationship to failure. But the way you said, oh, I wrote this and then it was a flop, was almost like like in a sunny disposition. Yeah. So I wonder how, how do you... If, especially when you're... Oh, that's what we were talking about today, sorry, was the difficult second album. Oh, I was yeah. talking about the, okay. you know, the premise of you, you do this mm. release, this oh. great album, you've spent ages on it, it comes out, everyone likes it, and then you have to do it again. Yeah. And it's, it's a bit trickier. What, how do you cope with the failure? Uh, and I know in the past I've heard you talk about that it wasn't really ever put on you as a failure from your publishers. Yeah, well, I mean, that was... So my disposition about it probably wouldn't have been as sunny at yes, the time. right, absolutely. <laughs> it's uh, pretty difficult. And I think being a writer, given that most books fail right. sales-wise, yep. like there was this statistic, and it's a few years out of date now. I don't know whether it would have gotten better or worse, but a couple of statistics. One was that an estimated one in every 10,000 romance novels written gets published, something like that. And another one, and this seems like an easier thing to measure, so it's probably more accurate, also I read it in the New Yorker, was (laughs) that um, 70% of books published in the United States don't um, earn out their advance. And, but that's okay because the 30% that do become bestsellers and they kind of fund everything else. So this article- That's how the industry works. Yeah, yeah, or it's how it used to work. This article was kind of about Amazon and how the fact that books were being sold so cheaply meant that the margins on the bestsellers were so thin, there was no money left over to fund other books that might have been riskier and and might Mm. fail. So uh, that's, again, probably outside the scope of my expertise. But I I do know that that failure is the likely option in most of what I do. And I I was doing a bit of maths a little while ago, and uh, and I wish I'd done it earlier in my life. I might have found it encouraging. Well, then again, maybe not. Hang on, I'll come back to that. But... (laughs) If you take, so 0.9 to the power of 22 mm-hmm. is less than 0.1. And what that means is that mathematically, it takes 22 right. attempts to turn a 90% chance of failure into a 90% chance of succeeding right. at least once. Yeah. And it may not be a coincidence that 
300 minutes of danger was something like my 20th book. Right, you know, right, right, right. So maybe I'm beating the odds in, in that sense, even having written all those flops. But I do think being a writer requires a certain amount of self-delusion. I've talked okay. to a lot of other writers about this and we're all reluctant to talk about it publicly. On social media, you will only see writers mm. talking about their successes and that's maybe there's a bit of ego in it, but it's also because we worry, probably rightly, that if you admit that you know your book isn't doing very well you're not making a lot of money you secretly have another job to make ends meet yeah. then readers will see that and go well maybe you're just not a very good writer right, right, and right. i shouldn't buy your books and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy yes, right? Right. but if you can get a writer in private and ask them mm -hmm. sort of some questions about how they feel about their career they will often talk about this necessary capacity for self-delusion where yes the last book i wrote um, didn't sell many copies and didn't win any awards and no one really liked it. And that was also true of the one before that and the one before that and the one before that. But this next one will be different. Right. <laughs> and even so you're willing to spend, if you're willing to spend a year or two writing something, you would only do that if you had deluded yourself yes, into right. thinking that, that it one. would be a mm. hit even though the odds are stacked against you so sometimes you need to engage in a bit of double think yeah in order to work in any to survive in any creative industry i guess yeah, i think that's the case absolutely but i've also found that um my first so uh, forget sort of sales and stuff the the more because there's there's no control over that how i feel about it doesn't affect the outcome Whereas a different kind of failure or a different kind of rejection is when you get a, um, a structural report from a publisher right. that says the, the ending is wrong. You need to write a new ending and right. also a new beginning and also a new middle. In short, <laughs> none of this works. And so the first time I got a report like that, yeah. I was, you know, devastated and now I get a report like that. I'm like, okay, I'm excited. Let's let's right, pull this apart and right. put it back together. And when I meet um, young sort of emerging writers, I've I've come to believe that that's kind of a necessary stage because you meet kids and they get negative feedback on their work. If they just shrug it off, yep. then that's actually a bad sign rather than a good sign. I yes. think the the kid who gets really cut up about negative feedback, that's proof that they put a lot of themselves mm. into their work and they really cared about what they were doing. Yeah. So they'll hopefully get there eventually to a stage where they don't take it personally but still put a lot of effort in. Yeah. But I think it takes a lot, of, mm. a lot of failures to get there. It's a bit like how um, reviews on Goodreads, like writers are always... Um, told don't read the reviews it'll you know sort of mess with you or whatever I read all of them oh, right. and but the thing is it's because I've had so many good reviews and so many bad reviews that it all kind it's of like becomes yeah yeah water off the duck's back so that means I don't get upset about bad reviews but then the unfortunate side effect of that is that I don't get mm. ecstatic over the good ones right. either I just kind of look at them all and go oh, that's interesting that's Sometimes I go like, well, this clearly, um, this is more a review, an indication of how the book was marketed because right. this is someone who clearly thought they were buying a mm. horror novel and actually it's a crime novel. Um, but in some other cases, there'll be more useful feedback in there. Like, for example, 
Sorry, I've talked a long time without mm-hmm. letting you get a word in edgewise. This is but, the way I like it. Okay, well, I've got um, a book called Hangman, which is about a cannibal who works for the FBI. Of course. And, well, why not? It just made sense to me. Um, <laughs> I like and it. obviously there are some people who they're like, yuck, right. yeah. no, I want nothing to do with that. And there are other people who absolutely love it. And I can't really learn anything from either right. of those extremes. Yeah. But sometimes there's something a bit in the middle like a recent review I saw where it was a person who really liked the book, but their critique of the main character was, they said, he's always looking people up and down and working out where the fat deposits are and trying to, and, <laughs> and going like, oh, that person looks juicy. I'd like to put him in my freezer or whatever. Right. And the, this reviewer said, look, I'm a carnivore. I eat animals. I'm perfectly capable of looking at a cow without licking my lips. You know, that's just not how that's I a, see that's things. That's a good point, yeah. And I was like, ah, I should factor that in and i on the one hand i enjoy writing those scenes from the cannibal's point of view where he's sort of um looking people up and down and sort of weighing them in his head but when i was trying to respond to that review in my head i don't respond to the reviewers directly other than sometimes to thank them um but i thought well what is the difference why would one person look at a cow and not think that and him look at a person and my my answer to that was it's probably because it's something he's trying to repress Mm. right like you uh thoughts i know this from my own experience the thoughts that you try the hardest to kind of push down are the ones that spring back the most powerfully so the fact that he sees people this way is kind of proof of the fact that this is not who he wants to be that's right and i never would have really had that insight into my own character if i hadn't read that negative review yeah exactly what a great idea I would also say too, when you look at a cow, ease of access. If you look, if you're a cannibal and there's a human walking along the street, the cow's got to go through manufacture and through the yeah 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 right. The the thing that the cannibal is eating looks a lot more like the animal it started out. There as you go. That's than a, a piece of steak in a. There you go. There's your opening. For the next <laughs> yeah, That's I wasn't going to write any more of them, but if I do, I'll I'll work all of that in. Now, it's all I, grist I, for the mill. Do you? I don't know if you've noticed, but what, how do you feel about, as a reader you, um, yourself, mm. when authors respond to critics through their novels? Oh, okay. Uh, this is interesting. Because I, I was just listening to a podcast about Scott Adams, the right. cartoonist, who's yeah. um, who's gotten especially unhinged lately. The, the what is it with cartoonists getting unhinged? <laughs> What's going I on? I don't know. But they brought up Michael Crichton, right. who got a, a negative review yeah. and then... Um, and then, like, wrote the reviewer into his, yeah. his book and gave them some very unsavory personality yeah. traits and stuff. And they were saying, dude, you're Michael Crichton. Just, you know, blow your nose on a few hundred dollar notes. <laughs> like, you wrote Jurassic Park. Why do you care what yeah. this person thinks? Why do you respond so negatively to it? So, I, uh, so in short, I don't know. I think yeah. it's, it's probably best yeah. not to respond. I think that's probably um, true, yeah. There was, although there is a terrific um, book about to come out called um, Everyone on This Train is a Suspect by mm. Benjamin Stevenson. And it hasn't come out yet, so I, I don't want to spoil any yep. of it. But there was a wonderful little moment involving a, a writer who wrote a book and then um, it was 
savaged in a review and he wrote to the reviewer and they ended up married. Oh. So, and I know that's fiction, yeah. but it doesn't sound impossible. <laughs> no, so maybe there are circumstances under which you should, um, <laughs> you uh, should that have is, a go of it. I mean, that sounds like an Emily Henry novel, I guess. It it's does, doesn't It's that kind of thing it? of like, so, yeah, people in the industry meeting. Anyway, yeah. um, speak, I want to just finish with a, a question about uh, reading. Yes. Um, as a writer, knowing the mechanics of how you work, does it affect the way you read? Are you mm. able to read as a reader? Or is that part of you that's a writer noticing yeah. things? It's like a filmmaker watching a film, noticing what's happening, or a comedian watching, yeah, knowing how the sausage is made, so to speak. Um, mm, that's that's very that... insightful of you. A lot of people don't think of that. <laughs> so the main result of it is that I don't, typically enjoy reading in my own genre okay. um so i i love reading but the closer it is to the kind of stuff that i write right. the more it feels like being at work okay. um, and so sometimes even if it's a really good book i'm i'm looking at it with sort of you know respect mm -hmm. rather than enjoyment and the the fact that i can sort of see the puppeteer yeah um uh, like I, I, I reach for the, the puppeteer method a lot because the thing is that a, a really good puppet, if you're looking at the puppeteer, yeah. then you, you're you not enjoying the puppet show or yeah. um, you need to be willing to sort of suspend your disbelief. And it's one of the reasons that I don't like this push to authors kind of revealing their whole process on social media or, or anywhere else, right. like the author as a personality, yeah. um, because I don't want readers to be thinking about me while they're reading. If they're thinking about me, then that just reminds them that the characters are fake and yeah, it's all stuff right. that I just made up. So that means that even though I write, you know, very gruesome crime for adults and I write sort of action adventure stuff for middle grade, what I read tends to be books about uh, divorced women in their 40s learning to love again. That's like my my favorite genre to read. I read it over and over and over. I absolutely love it. Jessica Detman is my favorite author probably. I also really like Holly Wainwright, um, stuff like that. But I think uh, one, one thing to note though is that when I'm reading a book in my own genre and I'm not thinking about what I would do differently and sometimes I'm like I predict twists and then when when the twists happen I'm disappointed and when they don't happen I'm even more disappointed because mm -hmm. I think oh that my version would have been so much better right but yes when I'm not doing that um that's proof that it's a really good book Absolutely. sometimes a really great writer can make me switch off my writer brain and switch on my reader brain mm -hmm. and those are the books where I typically spend the following 18 months recommending it to everyone I know saying you've got to read this it's just mind-blowing absolutely all right well thank you Jack Heath for joining us the book coming out August 1st is 300 minutes of mystery it's thanks the for having me and last book Tenth in the final. series can't remember what the title was and ended with a U we probably can't use it all right thanks very much thank you that's it